now. Well, thank you, Brandon, and everyone, for, and Todd, for organizing. And it's really a pleasure to be here for me, because I'm often in conferences with early American historians. So this has been a wonderful exchange today to talk to more of you in the material culture and the art history. So I'll certainly welcome your feedback on this, as this is a part of my project in looking at um, the Jefferson image and how I feel he did use it very politically. Well, portraits that were used in Western diplomacy in the 18th, early 19th century, they could really travel either way. We've already talked some about how they could serve as gifts for a departing diplomat, but they could also arrive with a new minister to provide a visual presence of the leader or the monarch that the diplomat, of course, traditionally embodied. Now, the pendant portraits that are going to be the focus of this paper were intended to travel with American diplomat James Bowden III following his 1804 assignment to the court of Spain and Madrid. Bowden wished to have portraits of the president, Thomas Jefferson, and the Secretary of State, James Madison, with him in Spain, and he commissioned them from American artist Gilbert Stuart. Now, this paper considers uh, these portraits within the context of their commission, and how they reflected national identity and leadership at this point in early American history. Well, in 1777, and of course then we're very early in the American Revolution, Jefferson was ready to claim that the people had put away monarchy and accepted republicanism, he said, as easily as putting on a new suit of clothes. But was it that easy? Jefferson himself frequently had doubts and he worried about the American Republic sliding back into some form of monarchy, even if it was a constitutional monarchy, or perhaps evolving into a dictatorship. Well, this had been really the history of republics. If you go back to Rome, or you come up to the English Commonwealth in the 17th century, or, of course, a more immediate example uh, would be then the sister republic of France, for which Jefferson had held out so much hope but he was beginning to be very disturbed by Napoleon, and of course, then late in 1804, Napoleon is crowned the emperor. So in 1804, the American image of national leadership was still very much finding its way. The Constitution, it did become functioning as the law of the land in March of 1789, and one of the earliest debates between the newly created Houses of Congress concerned titles and symbols of leadership. In April 1789, a resolution originated in the Senate that put forward the issue of what styles or titles it will be proper to annex to the offices of President and Vice President of the United States, if any other than those given in the Constitution. Well, when this reached the House of Representatives, the response was unequivocal. Representative Thomas Tudor of South Carolina took the floor, and he was emphatic in his response. He maintained that the dignity of the United States could not be enhanced by granting to the chief executive, in his words, a high title, or embroidered robe, a princely equipage, and finally a crown and hereditary succession. In his estimation, the dignity of the country depended upon tranquility, order, wealth, and strength at home. And just to follow up on that, uh, this bill did get 
bandied back and forth a bit, but ultimately it was not passed. And of course today we still say Mr. President, so that didn't move forward. But in his Psychology of Clothes, which is a very early work, but one of the seminal works uh, in that area, J.C. Flugel noted that clothing, by adding to the apparent size of the body in one way or another, gives us an increased sense of power, a sense of extension of the bodily self, ultimately by enabling us to fill more space. Well, this extension of the bodily self was certainly the duty performed by robes of state, as well represented in this portrait that we've been viewing um, of Louis XVI, the original, of course, if you just heard by Calais. This is the, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I get these guys out of the way. Um, this is, the slide I'm showing you is actually the current <coughs> version by Vivek Abravik, in that it's the one that we do have at Monticello, and when Washington received his copy of this print in 1791, Jefferson also received a copy, and we do have in his catalog that he did have this hanging in his parlor at Monticello. So this image of Louis, as we just heard, was very familiar. But if you're denied then these luxuriant robes of state, what was to be the appropriate image for American Republican leadership? And as you've just heard from Ellen Miles, George Washington, he's the one that took the lead here. He made the black suit uh, an appropriate regalia for an elected Republican patriarch. He really honed this look of the Republican patriarch, or patrician, excuse me, the Republican patrician. Um, so this was an image that had, as you've heard from Ellen, had become very much uh, what people were beginning to be accustomed to, to seeing. And certainly so by the time that Jefferson comes into the presidential office in 1801. But I think it's very interesting that during his presidency, Thomas Jefferson really tried to rebel against kind of what I call the long shadow of Washington. Because he did disapprove of much of the protocol that had been instituted during Washington's administration, continued and under John Adams. And uh, he felt that, I mean, as provincial as it was, he still felt that it had too much of the monarchical um, in, in uh, kind of trappings about it. So, upon, uh, so upon coming into the presidency in 1801, well, the first thing he did was to discontinue any kind of formal levees. He did not appear in Washington in a fine carriage, in the city of Washington, in a fine carriage accompanied by a liveried servant. He didn't even have an attendant, and that was noticed by many people. And then there are many occasions in which he was described as appearing either publicly or in the president's house and receiving others in what was really considered less than elegant and by some what they felt was very inappropriate clothing for the president. And you may have heard of the most notorious incident, uh, perhaps in this vein. This was with, when the new British minister arrived. This was Anthony Mary. He arrived in um, November of 1803, and he was presented by Secretary of State uh, James Madison to the president, and he felt that the president appeared in undress that was completely inappropriate. He writes in his report to the Foreign Office in London, he says that the manner in which the president presented himself, he said, it was indicative of utter slovenliness and indifference to appearances and a state of negligence actually studied. He goes on then, he, he goes on for quite a while about this, but then he concludes his report to the Foreign Office in saying, 
I could not doubt that the whole scene was prepared and intended and in, as an insult not to me personally, but to the sovereign I represented. So here he's calling again upon that idea that the diplomat embodied the presence of the sovereign. And so I think in other instances, this is why the sovereign's representation in portraiture was also very important. Well, despite accusations of slobbiness, and this is always hard to explain and put it, and really nail it down, but there's also ample descriptions of Jefferson appearing very much as Washington in a very appropriate black suit with his hair nicely powdered. So it seemed to depend upon the circumstances and in which way he was going to present himself as president. But James Bowden's assignment to Spain was important. And why so? Just a little geopolitical politics here. But the United States was negotiating for the possession of East Florida and especially West Florida from Spain. Now you may remember it was in October of 1803 that they had completed the Louisiana Purchase Treaty. Now, when Jefferson first began negotiating for the port of New Orleans, and that, well, here we go, this would be New Orleans here, he really was wanting to get at least this over to the Perdido River, but he really wanted, uh, and this was in the original negotiations, he wanted that, what we would call today the Gulf Coast area, because he felt that this was an area that was very vital for the United States commerce, security. It was going to really promise a lot more immediate rewards to growth, prosperity, than all of that country up the far west. Now, he didn't turn that down, but that was not what he was originally hoping to achieve. Well, now, what Jefferson then tried after the Purchase Treaty is signed is he tried to almost pretend, oh, well, yeah, that was a part of it. But he tried to argue that the region, having at one time been claimed by France, was included in the Louisiana Purchase Treaty. Spain, however, maintained their right of possession. Still, Jefferson felt that he could obtain Napoleon's support in these negotiations. In his instructions to James Bowden, when he appoints him, Je uh, Jefferson placed the blame upon Spain. He claimed that the United States well, desired only a peaceful coexistence between the two countries in North America, but it, would, it was Spain who had acted with jealousy, secret malice, ill faith. He said, our patience is now on its last trial. So relations were strained between the United States and Spain. A show of resolve was needed in order for the United States to be acknowledged as a political power that should even be recognized in these negotiations, much less obtaining what they're after. Uh, Jefferson must have thought that uh, Bowdoin, to be enough the cosmopolitan, that he was going to be able to represent the United States very appropriately at a European court. Now, Bowdoin had been educated at Harvard. He had followed that up with um, some, uh, some training and education at, at Oxford. He had taken the grand tour of Europe. He had spent time in Europe. Um, he came from a very well-established Boston family. He himself was an art collector, as his father before him. So certainly a cosmopolitan um, among Americans. He was very cosmopolitan. The portraits that Bowdoin commissioned to hang in the American legation in Madrid, and therefore represents the country's leadership, had to be appropriate for this assignment.
Bowdoin contacted his good friend Henry Dearborn. Now, Henry Dearborn was Secretary of War uh, in Jefferson's administration, and he called upon Dearborn to negotiate the portraits. In this letter to Dearborn, he requested, I shall be much obliged to you to procure me the portraits of Mr. Jefferson and Mr. Madison if a good painter can be found at Washington, and they should be willing to take the trouble of sitting therefore. After a short explanation of where in Spain the paintings were to be shipped, how payment should be collected, he became a little more explicit then as he said to the painter he would prefer and stated, I should like to have them done by Stuart. Could he be induced to execute them as well he is able? Of course, as we've seen the Lansdowne, the subsequent portraits of that, Bowdoin would have been familiar with, with Stuart's work. He wanted them to be of half length and to be a matching pair. With Dearborn in Washington, and therefore in very frequent contact with both Jefferson and Madison, Bowdoin's re request could easily have been de uh, delivered personally, and I can find no written account of him asking these two gentlemen to sit to Stuart. Uh, Bowdoin's polite wording, if they should be willing to take the trouble of sitting there for, sounds as though Bowdoin intended a direct request to be made to the President and the Secretary of State, State you know, asking them if they would be willing to do this. Now, a sitting for Madison was not necessary, however, as Stuart had completed a pendant portrait of James and his wife Dolly Madison just the previous year. And so a current, either uh, a copy or perhaps still had access to the original, would have been available for Stuart. This wasn't the case with Jefferson. Now, Jefferson had sat to Stuart while both men were in Philadelphia in 1800, but, this was not unusual Stuart, Jefferson paid him the $100, but he never received a finished portrait. Stuart claimed he was dissatisfied with the, uh, the portrait that he had taken in Philadelphia. Some speculate that he may possibly have not even had, still had the portrait. There's a bit of a mystery there as surrounding that first portrait that Stuart had taken of, of Jefferson. So nevertheless, he needed another sitting with Thomas Jefferson. I don't think it's unrealistic to think that Jefferson arrived at, at, at Stuart's studio with two objectives here. He wants to obtain a portrait that he felt he was due, he had paid for, and I do think he must have known that he was also sitting to Stuart for, Bowd for Bowdoin's commission as well. Um, because he was very close with Henry Dearborn, it, it's hard to believe that Dearborn wouldn't have expressed what, what was going on here, what this was about, even though there's nothing written on it, uh, obviously. But the timing of his appointment uh, followed very closely upon Bowdoin's request in that Bowdoin left for Spain early in May of 1805. We know that Jefferson sat for Stuart somewhere around the latter part of May, the first part of June. And so it's unlikely, too, that Jefferson was un unaware of Stuart's presence in the sparsely populated new capital city. I mean, there weren't that many people in Washington at that time. And the, he had been working, Stuart had been working uh, here for almost a year. And of course, he had taken these pendant portraits of the Madisons, and Dolly was very pleased with them, so hard to believe she didn't say something at one of their dinner parties. But this, perhaps this, it was this commission then from Bowdoin 
which, and I, you know, there's no answer why had Jefferson not contacted him in the previous year to say, hey, where's my painting, where's my portrait? So maybe it was this, well, he had actually been pretty busy with the Louisiana Purchase Treaty, for one thing, but um, it, it could be that this commission then sparked him to go to, or for Stuart to contact him, him to contact Stuart, however they set up this appointment. But he does then get to Stuart's studio. Um, and so I think then Dearborn may have communicated these are for diplomatic purposes. Bowden's on his way to Spain. This is why he wants the portraits. Well, the resulting portrait of Jefferson that, that Stuart then completes comes the closest to what could be accepted as an official state portrait of any that was made of Jefferson during his presidency. It was painted, but now, state portraits, of course, often come right after the coronation of the king. This one didn't come until the beginning of his second term. However, he was really at the zenith of his, his accomplishments as president. And it's interesting to look at it, and you can certainly see that many of the same elements that Stuart used in his highly su successful portrait of Washington, which was presented uh, to Lansdowne, reappear. I mean, the figure is placed in a portico-like setting. Now, there's the large column, the red swag of drapery, plus drapery covering the table, the red upholstery of the chair. And all echo these grand traditions borrowed from Europe. And then even looking past the figure, there is kind of an atmospheric depth there. Um, Jefferson didn't get the rainbow like Washington did, but there is kind of that little bit of a glow in the sky, which you could interpret perhaps as you know, kind of the beginning of a new day, the beginning of a new country. Um, and there are the usual um, books on the table, however, when you really look at this one carefully, it did not get the detail that the Washington Lansdowne uh, received. Because yes, there's books there, but you can't read the titles in these. Ellen was pointing out the actual titles on those books on the table and on the floor, but you can't read these. They're just books on the table. There's the usual papers under his hand, which of course you could uh, interpret as a man of learning, a man of statecraft. Um, so both the Stuart and uh, Stuart's Jefferson and Madison appear to have been executed more hurriedly, and indeed they probably were because uh, Stuart was in the process of relocating to Boston, and he actually actually completed the portraits once he arrived there. Now Bowden has specifically requested half-length, not full-length portraits which place some limitations um, on a more elaborate pose. So both men are seated alongside these elegantly draped tables. Stuart turned Jefferson slightly away from the picture plane, but his gaze is directly toward the viewer. His eyes are very level and direct. The entire expression, I interpret as very calm and firm. He looks collected as he sits there, kind of staring back at you. But looking a little closer at the Madison, uh, Stuart made some changes here that I find very interesting. He modified somewhat his copy of the Madison original that he had, and that's the one that of course you're seeing. This would have been the original that he painted as a pendant <coughs> portrait uh, for Dolly Madison's uh, portrait. But he made some changes that I think better suit, uh, suit the purpose of this commission. Now he left the angle of the head unchanged but he opened the body to a more frontal position by moving the arm over the back of the chair. The forward gaze, which you, you see in the, the one to your, <clears throat> to your left here, 
was moved from the viewer to the right, which of course then makes it for a better companion portrait to the Jefferson. But what I think is most interesting is that Stuart changes Madison's expression a bit. Now if we look at this, uh, this the first, this portrait, when you really study it, there's kind of a little twinkle in his eye. It's almost like he's beginning <coughs> about to smile. But when you look then at what he did for the Madison, for the Bowdoin Commission, the look is, that smile's kind of gone. The look is much more intense. There's even a slight frown that's been added. The lighting becomes a little more dramatic. The shadowing of the face is a little more pronounced. So, did these slight changes better reflect Madison's political responsibilities, the diplomatic role of intended for this portrait? Because in his capacity as Secretary of State, his duties would include uh, working with the diplomat and working very closely with the negotiations of any kind of international relationships. This came then very much through the office of the Secretary of State. So in this current issue between the United States and Spain, he might have to be ready to argue for the United States' possession of the Floridas. I, I think it's interesting the way Stuart opened up the body. I mean, he almost looks like he could spring forward out of that chair. Um, so, Secretary of State, he's got to deal with the diplomat in charge. He's got to be the man negotiating some of this. Of course, though, then the um, going back to both of them together, the president has got to just remain very firm, very resolved, and unwavering in, in what they're trying to accomplish. Certainly, Stuart kind of anchors Jefferson there with his hand on the table. Now, to how they're dressed. Stuart depicted both Jefferson and Madison dressed in the black suits. So back to this. And this, of course, follows very much the Washington prototype. Now, this color choice at this point in time, this early 19th century period, in the wardrobe of the well-dressed Western man of the late 18th, early 19th century, <coughs> excuse me, evolved from political sources, um, I think very much the rising influence of the commercial middle class. If you think even about enlightenment thought that fostered the concept of you know, a natural equality that went against this idea of sumptuary laws, um, clothing that visually somehow defined class distinctions and rank. So it could be uh, uh, explained in response to the zeitgeist of the time, that spirit of the time, which clothing historian Jeffrey Squire defines as the mysterious force which results from communally held needs, beliefs, and desires. So did the black suit fit the image of the duly elected chief executive of a republic. Well, in 1801, following Jefferson's first presidential inauguration, Bowdoin sent Jefferson a congratulatory, uh, congratulatory letter. And I find Jefferson, a little remark he makes when he responds into Bowdoin, saying thank you for your letter, I, I find it interesting, <coughs> excuse me, because um, he drew an interesting profile of his own position in the recent election. He wrote, though it was a contest of principle merely, yet as a name was necessarily to be connected with the contest, I viewed with due respect and consolation my name selected for that purpose, and myself considered as the safe depository of the principle for which we were contending. 
So it's kind of a self-effacing description of his own role in this recent election and really places him just kind of as a conduit of the principles of good government. The principles mattered, not the man. The black suit could be interpreted as analogous to Jefferson's insistence that he was simply a conduit of good government. <coughs> Excuse me. In this vein of thought, any man could wear the black suit. Royal robes, such as those we've been seeing on Louis XVI, they had historically been reserved for those born to the station, or perhaps in more recent examples of Napoleon achieved the military conquest, or what we'd be seeing there, and, but not by popular election of the people. The black suit seemed to meet the requirements of Americans as they sorted out their national image and worked to establish a functioning republic that was safe and stable. So I think the black suit functioned here. So just as kind of a little prologue, what happened to these portraits and how were they received? Well, unfortunately, uh, Bowden became ill on the way to Madrid, and he kind of shifted course. He goes to London to be treated by doctors there. Then he goes on to Paris. He joins the American diplomat um, uh, John Armstrong there in Paris, because actually they decided at this point, with Napoleon's influence in Spain, um, Napoleonic influence there, they might as well be negotiating from Paris as from Madrid. However, Bowden, is, his health does not totally uh, improve. And he finally then writes and asks to be recalled for various reasons, primarily for health reasons. And so as a consequence then, he is back in Boston by April of 1808. The portraits never go to Madrid. They're still being held there in Boston. So they are then um, displayed, we know, in his Boston residence. And then after his death in 1811, they join much of his collection, which is today at Bowdoin College. And that's where these, these portraits are now. So that's what I think is interesting the, to conclude here. The audience became, for these portraits, became American, not European, as was the intent. And the portraits then were never actually tested as examples of American leadership before cosmopolitan European viewers. So we can always wonder, would they have been effective in supporting Bowdoin's diplomatic efforts? Mm -hmm.